So I'd like to start off with a public service announcement, <laughs> which applies to a third of you. And a third of you should not hear this at all. And the other third, it really doesn't make much difference. Okay, so that's the, that's the setup. And what I would like to suggest for a third of you, undesignated third of you, is that you loosen your practice up. Loosen it up. Relaxation is not often found within the repetition of sitting and walking. It can often be found in uh, reverting to other activities, like taking a walk, or having tea, or sitting on the balcony and just being observant. Now, the reason I say that is that some of us work the form of the practice too diligently, and it, although you may think that you're relaxing within it, it, the way you work it isn't relaxed. It has a tightness, and they're still being driven in some way, and it's, it's like you're taking a vehicle somewhere, and this is not what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to induce an orientation of softness, of tenderness, of availability. And sometimes the practice of the formal practice works against that intention. So we take ourselves off. Now, the third of you who should not be hearing this are the ones that do that anyway <laughs> to the point of indulgence. And you're not given to the form and you don't rise to the occasion of the form, to the um, calling of the form, and you, your near enemy that walks with you hand in hand is the sense of just wanting to be comfortable. And each of you know who you are. And so for you, this is not a public, a service, a public service announcement. right? It's to your detriment to hear that. Now, but what is important for all of you, all each of the third, is f for you to figure out which of those proportions you're in. We need to know, and we have to be honest with ourselves, what we need, what calls us forth, what where we need to rise up to meet the Dharma, as opposed to relaxing and softening. Some of us have to sort of toned down to meet the Dharma. Others of us have to rise up to meet the Dharma. So I offer that as a possibility for each of you to look inside to see whether that strain and stress is overbearing. And may I say, it was for me. I, uh, when I got to um, Thailand, on my morning, I would get up Two o'clock in the morning, I was an early morning riser and uh, would do some sitting until I walked out on alms round. And then I would do extended, usually, you know, two or three hours of walking, just walking. And then I would, the rest of the day, I would just sit on the porch. Uh, it wasn't a tension-filled sitting and walking application of time. I had done that for years in other settings. And 
I couldn't do that form for me without a kind of tension. Tension uh, that was building to kind of a crescendo that eventually led to me uh, having to examine my own willful effort. And I saw the value of bringing the practice in. Insight doesn't have a particular posture represented. It doesn't have a, it doesn't only happen within form. In fact, mostly for me, it didn't happen within form at all. Maybe walking or taking a walk or some time when there was this uh, inherent harmony, but without any uh, sense of of practice pressure. And we each have to find our way into that kind of, it's leisure, but it's an attentive leisure. It's a um, very observant leisure. It's not leisure without observation. It's a very aware presence. But presence doesn't need our work ethic to be accessed. There are two forms of awareness, mindfulness. There's the mindfulness that is engendered through your will, right? I will be mindful and take picking, rising, lifting, moving, placing, and all of that, and touching the glass, feeling the coldness of the glass, the raising of the glass, the touch of the glass to your lips, all of that. That's what I call self-induced mindfulness. Then there is awareness that pre-exists your efforts. <clears throat> In fact, is waiting for you the absence of your application and will so that it can access you, so that it can so you see, show you that it's pre-existing. And that can only be accessed. And that's the real awareness. The other is an, an introduction. It gives you some sense of what we're doing and why we're doing and some operational sense of where this might be leading, but it's all confiscated by the sense of me. It's all me doing it. And most of our form is me doing it. Try, when you sit, and I'll do a guided meditation tomorrow, when you sit, there are two ways you can sit. You can sit with awareness. That is, I'll be on my breath, being aware of my breath, being aware of my thoughts. Or you can sit within awareness. That surrounds you because it pre-exists your application. And just get a sense of that. And get a sense of it right now. See? And so I offer that if you would like to experiment, move, do. Use the week for your, for your value, to, for your, it's your retreat. It's not my retreat, it's your retreat. So make it work for you. And if you are too stressful and willful, and, and just work. Bow string is the layer string or whatever the, Metaphor was that the Buddha used is too loose or too tight. It has to play the note exactly. 
Okay, so let me say that and I'll open it up to any comments or questions or anything you'd like to discuss or please. Yes, Jerry. Yes. Question, question is, can anger ever be trusted? Um, I'll, let me approach that question from a different angle, if I could. Usually anger represents uh, some issue that we care about very deeply that we have been, it has been thwarted, but we were blocked from some issue. Right? We care about something and we don't have access to what we care. It's not going the way we wanted it to go. It's not, something's not happening in accordance to our expectation that we really wanted to occur. And that uh, sidetracking or that uh, diver uh, diversification, diverse diverted, that diversion is is can be is a diversion of the heart. It's what I really care about that is not being fulfilled. So anger represents an unfulfilled um, affection, something that you care about deeply. Right? And the more you care about it, the more angry anger that's going to arise when it's not being fulfilled. And so from that perspective, anger is really grief. You see? And if we begin to acknowledge the grief that we are feeling, it throws anger into a very different a very different orientation. There's a very different orientation to anger if we realize that it's a coming from, derived from grief. And so when we begin to we say, okay, what am I grieving? What am I grieving? And when we orient ourselves to that, then we can move through it much more quickly than we can in self-righteousness, which is the reactivity to grief, but isn't acknowledging the loss that has incurred. See? So, for me, I ask anger, it, am I afraid? Or am I hurt? And I can only I can only see anger coming from those one of those two things. And if I'm hurt, there's grief. And if I'm angry, I mean, if I'm fearful, often there is still grief because I'm afraid I didn't get what I really wanted. Or, some t or anger can also be from the startling, from being so startled or backed into a corner and have no other resources but to lash out. Hmm? So I need, to, I need to get it more refined in what its derivation is. And I can do that very quickly. You can do it very quickly. You can feel it in yourself. And then when you have a handle on it, you can work with it much more in line with the correct emotion um, uh, and either have communication so that you can see what it is that you wanted that wasn't given to you, whether that can be negotiated or whatever it is. But 
Um, it's a very energizing emotion. And some of us use anger in order to energize ourselves. Some of us use anger um, inappropriately to gain the energy we feel we're lacking. We whip ourselves into action. And I don't think you can trust You cannot trust that. Because it's, it's self-abuse, really. And if we have to look for energy from being abused rather than from our derived from our intentionality to life, from our interest to life, from our uh, attention to life, then it's the wrong, it's using the whip in the wrong way. So, uh, see whether anger, what's the derivation of anger? And whether one can then orient oneself to that emotion that's driving the anger in a more aligned and a skillful way than where anger may be taking us in terms of lashing out. Other questions? Well, this may be a very short night. Yes. The question is around um, using the practice uh, to serve the world in this moment and the love that the world needs and how does this practice address that? You know, I can't talk you into this frame of reference, but I intuitively know it in myself that everything influences everything else that the wind below, the, the leaf that is moving on the tree in East Germany has as much bearing on us influentially as everything else is moving. Everything is moving cohesively together in a particular way. And everything is influenced by everything else. And so to to section ourselves off and say that what we do doesn't have influence on the totality is not really understanding. Uh, it's trying to try to talk ourselves into it is uh, being embedded within the wrong view of separation and trying to talk ourselves in some kind of totality. We either know that or we don't. And so if we don't know it, do it for yourself because it's, it's good for you. Don't try to have a theory or philosophy that ascribes to something that you haven't seen because that's it's kind of useless. In fact, it's, it's um, where New Age stuff comes from. You know? I just don't... I either know it or I don't know it. And if I don't know it, I don't proclaim it. I happen to know this one. I happen to know that the willingness to change our disposition to move from aggression to kindness affects the general consciousness of the whole species. It is not isolated in what I'm doing. The yogi in the cave in the Himalayas has a radiant effect upon all things. 
There's no question in my mind. They're not in there doing it for themselves. So until we have that understanding, I would stay away from the philosophy because it just sounds, it sounds new agey. So why do we do it for ourselves? Because we see that the only way that we can open to anything is except and until we love that which we see. Because if we have any other motivation to what we see, we have some agenda for what we see. We want it to change. We want it to be different. Any other motivation except the motivation to love, which doesn't want anything from it, we can't understand what that thing is. And it's only through understanding what that thing is that we will be able to see both the that, that it's harmless and so we don't need to be resistant to it and we can see the emptiness that's inherent in both it and the person who is seeing. Those two things arise together. The emptiness of what I see and the emptiness of that which sees. And that conduit of emptiness to emptiness is only possible through the vehicle of love. Now love isn't some romantic heartwarming, um, it's not a romance relationship. It's just leaving something completely alone in observation. It's what light does to you. See, light highlights you. My assumption is that light may not hold the consciousness, but awareness does. Awareness holds the consciousness, so that the intelligence, and the intelligence, when it's not moving for or against, towards you or away from you, but just holds you and embraces you, is now you're unafraid. You can come out. You can look around. You can see what's there. You're welcomed out of your shell only through that mechanism. Right? So in someone's attention who is generally caring about you, cares about you, just holding their attention so that they're listening to you, they don't have to feel warm, fuzzy thoughts about you. In fact, the fewer thoughts, the more the, the application, the attention, you feel held within that attention. And we know when we're held within someone's attention and you feel safe within that holding, don't you? And you feel that you can test it. And if you're watching to see whether that attention that holds you suddenly becomes judgmental through the actions that you hold within yourself as judge that you judge. So you're willing to test it a little bit, which is good therapy, which is the only way that therapy really works, really. And so then you're, you feel free within that, within yourself, because, my God, maybe I'm not as bad as I had thought I was. Just by being held by someone's attention. But if they're off thinking about something else, then you don't feel held at all. Or they're glancing away and kind of coming back to you. And what would you say? You know, you're not, even, you're not even in the picture, which is usually the way we pay attention to one another, isn't it? It's also mostly the way we pay attention to ourselves. 
we can offer ourselves the same safety through that awareness. Because, in fact, awareness is holding us all the time. It's, we're always being held within awareness. And at some point we see that and there's a moment in which that is realized, in which there is nothing we then know for the first time what true non-judgmental awareness is. When you feel held within life because it doesn't want anything from us. It will let us play out our antics. It will let us be as mean as we want to. We can be cruel. We can be kind. It holds us regardless. And at some point we recognize that holding and it's so overwhelming, the sense of connection within that holding of awareness. And so unifying that everything is seen completely clearly. Yes. Tenderness and emptiness, very nice question. They're all nice questions, but question about tenderness and emptiness. It's very interesting, isn't it? So let's just look at that. I love these kind of things. Well, you've got to go into it to find out what the answer is. You can't just give it from some kind of book, right? So what is tenderness? You say, what's tenderness? Come follow me in this. So how is it? Where how do I how does the heart become tender? Well, first there has to be awareness of something. And then, whatever we're aware of, we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerably affected by what is there. Right? So we can't be protective. We can't be in uh, defense of what is there. So now what we're looking at in terms of tenderness is... An undefended sense of self. Well, now that's an oxymoron because there's no such thing as an undefended sense of self because the self is a manifestation of our defenses. So if I'm tender, the self is not. And that's emptiness. You see, the path through is the path of the heart. And what we call the path of the heart and the path of emptiness. Some people really respond to emptiness. That's my word. Stillness. That way. That's. Some people respond to the path of the heart. The heart. At some point. Perfect. Synchronicity between the two. And. It's one of the more joyful things to do is to take the path of the heart and just go with it. So what's the path of the heart? Kindness, compassion, love, caring. Just take a word that resonates with you and move with it. And what you see is that you get blocked by where you are defensive. Right? 
So either you're going to drop the word and give it up, or you're going to release the defense and move the word even deeper, like love. Eventually, you'll come to emptiness because there won't be any more defenses that will hold that word in abeyance. And then there'll be perfect, absolute perfect, the same synchronicity. And it's also a little more fun because kindness, everybody wants, you know, okay. And we start moving out in kindness and pretty soon we see what we're doing not being kind, we're being nice. And then we say, well, my God, niceness just feels phony to me because I'm keeps changing myself with everybody's expectation. Is that kindness? So we get over that hurdle. We find that it's not. And then we move kindness through. And then all of a sudden we find, well, I'm not really being kind. I'm being indulgent. And we come up against the near enemies of what kindness means. And all along the way there are places that we slip because that's where we want to really go. Right? We want people to like us, so I'll be nice. And I'm calling it my path of kindness. Right? And now I'm doing what Rodney said. I know I'm that third that overextends and over. So I'm going to drink tea. And inside we think, oh man, I just, nothing I'd rather do than just hang out. <laughs> just <kidding. laughs> no, I don't. So honesty has to accompany whichever path we take. Sincerity. Absolute sincerity. In fact, we have, everything is absolute, unfortunately. There can't be any, there can't be any altercation of, there has to be, the intention has to be absolute. Sorry, folks. The honesty has to be absolute. Because wherever it is that it's not, that's where you want and where you'll slip and where you'll indulge. So that's the sobering fact of what we do. Now the beauty of it is even if we are honest with where we're not honest, we're honest. Did you get that? <laughs> so you say, all right, I'm the third that I think I overreact. We start drinking tea and find out what we really are is indulgent, but we're honest with that. Oh my God, I'm really an indulgent. So <laughs> and we're honest, we see it, we're willing to see it. Okay, I'm honest. That's it. Now I'm, okay, so now I've got to, well, I can keep doing it, but then it starts grading on us when we're honest with the fact that we're being dishonest. You know, when you know when you're lying, you can't keep lying. It just, you can't keep doing it. It just, at some point, it calls us home, right? So that's how it works. Just keep your dishonesty, just be honest with it. And that will straighten us out. That will, that will bend us in accordance to the knowing of what we're doing. And the knowing of what we're doing, each of us know genuinely have an honest factor here. That's awareness. That's a pre-existing awareness, knowing what we're doing and the motivations of why we're doing it. And so one Tibetan karmapa, I think the 16th karmapa said, just do what you know, which means just be honest with what you're doing. Because all of us have that sense of whether we're being, you know, don't you? We all have that. We, you know, you're, you know it. You just may not want to get out of it right there, but you know it. So just put the weight of your attention on what you know, and that will create the inevitability of the alignment with your honesty. See how it works? 
doesn't require you to whip yourself into shape. Just be honest with what you know. Yes? Yes. 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 Okay, let's look at uh, the marriage of metta and vipassana, and we keep them too estranged, from my point of view. Okay, so let's bring them together. So we have what metta. In one aspect, I can talk about it in lots of different ways, but let me talk about it from this point of view. What it tries to do is it tries to open the heart to the barriers that we have imposed upon a whole series of different populations of people. It's easy to open a heart to uh, a mentor, someone who's done only good for us, and thank you, you know, and oh yes, I've got my heart shining. Then you have the next level of somebody who is just a friend, because friends are kind of ambiguity, they're, they're up and down, sometimes you like them, some, you know that. So now, but, but basically I'm a friend and now my heart opens. Then you have a neutral person who you don't care anything about. If I don't care anything about, they haven't done anything for me, why should I like them? And so we have this barrier of definition that keeps us from seeing the humanity, the commonality of what we share with that person, and until we see what we share with that person, our heart won't remain closed. We don't mean anything to us. You see, that's real separation. So then we see the commonality of experience and our heart opens. Then we take somebody who's difficult and we even look for the humanity past the behaviors. We see that the humanity pre-exists the behaviors that led to my not liking them. And if I can just get in touch again with what we have in common and not the behaviors, that the person is much more than the behaviors, I can like them. So that's, it's trying to access the heart through the different ways that we create the obstacles within our life where we turn away. All right? So Vipassana, insight. Insight is, a, is an attempt to be with things in a non-judgmental, accepting way. But we have a lot of opinions about things. We, what stops us from being present with things and to seeing what they are is our opinionation. And so awareness holds, keeps holding opinionation and we really look through opinionation and we don't... Because why? We have no caring about something. There's not caring about it. We don't really... We, we want to get over something. See, we're, we, one of the opinionations is... I've got a problem here that I need to resolve. That's an opinionation. That's a, this thing is an obstacle to a, a kind of pursuit that I think spirituality is. And so I look at something as, this is an obstacle. When something's an obstacle, we have no caring whatsoever about it. Okay, well, I'll give you an example. I was going to run a marathon. Got within about uh, six weeks of it. I was running uh, practice, fell down, broke my collarbone. Oh, was I angry because of that. It just took away the one marathon I was going to run, had it all lined up, going to Portland, blah, blah. Broke my collarbone. 
I was irritated and annoyed. Didn't care a thing about my, myself, the collarbone. All I cared about was that it stopped me from where I was going from the my marathon that I wanted to run. Okay, so after grumbling for a while, I opened I thought, oh, wait a minute. I care that this hurts. Now it was, you know, my spiritual heart came open. I thought, oh, you know, it's not, before it was an obstacle to what I wanted to do. Now I cared about it. And when I started to care about it, I started to work with my body in a way that kept it from greater damage, that would hold it in a way so that it could heal quick, more quickly. All the different things that it needed because I cared about it. There was a relationship to it. That was the fusion of metta with insight. You see? The caring attention. Attention on its... I knew that I'd broken it before, but it was an obstacle that kept me from my marathon. When I brought caring attention to it, caring about it, not what it kept me from doing, I dropped the opinions about what the injury would keep me from doing, and just with the presence of that very fact itself, I could care about it. The fusion of vipassana in metta is caring attention. Attention that holds, doesn't look beyond something to see what the obstacle that this thing is. Looks at itself, for itself, to see what it is in and of itself. Without creating any kind of obstacle from it at all. And we have to have that caring attention, that alignment of attention to everything we see. Or everything will be a problem. We don't care about a problem. We want a resolution to a problem, right? When we create, when we look upon our lives or our spiritual lives as a problem, then there are roadblocks to getting to where we want to be. We don't care about the thing itself. This is a very important point. When we care about the thing itself, there are no problems. The problem ends with the caring of it. This was not a problem anymore because it wasn't keeping me from anything. The collarbone became itself. You see, I cared about it itself. Are you following it at all? A little bit? Yeah, okay. a lot of um, love and kindness. Pardon? The, the, what you're describing sounds like a lot of love and kindness from Meta. Yes. Insight. No insight, dear. Awareness. I'm talking about how we, how we look upon our emotions, our thoughts, our physical sensations, not as obstacles. If you see them as obstacles, that is not insight meditation. See them for what they are and to, for you to be willing to look at what they are, knee pain, whatever it is. You have to see it not as something you want to get over. You have to love it for itself. Dead stop. Anger. This is what anger feels like. Oh, so this is what... Somebody... Wa- I read about this emotion. <laughs> For itself, not like, oh my God, I'm an angry person. I've got to get over this. Nobody, I've got to hide it so nobody's... No, no, then we have a problem. There's no love for anger. Love for anger is, look at this. This is an amazing emotion. 
Now that's insight. And loving, the fusion of loving kindness with insight. Something stands not for where an obstacle, but for itself. Something is for itself. Seeing for itself. We have to, to look at something for itself. We have to love it. It's just what I was saying early on. Any other motivation for looking has a hidden agenda to get over it, to get around it, to get through it, so that I can get to what I want to do, where I want to really go, which is not this thing. This thing is an obstacle to where... You see? We love things for themselves, and then everything is seen for themselves. For itself. And that is the only way we can get through, not by problem-solving. There are no problems. There are no problems. Yes. You spoke earlier about not getting too comfortable with washing the breath. Yes, I, it's uh, the indulgent spirit again, not getting too comfortable with the breath is the question. And uh, people uh, get seduced, you know, it, it, and you get seduced and you just love it, you know. It's like tranquil, you know, what do you do? I'm doing Anapanasati. For what? We've got a name for it. And it's in the Buddhist, he did a whole sermon on the thing. And so, but what we're really doing is not a panasati at all. We're just kind of snuggling up to it like a warm teddy bear, <laughs> kind of hanging out with it. And like, oh, this is so, it's so nice. Oh, and we're bathing ourselves in the, in the very pleasant feelings of it. And because it, it does, it gets very tranquil, very soft, very seductive, enamored. And we think, wow, this is amazing. I don't have access to this in my normal life. Why not hang out here? This may not even be a conscious dialogue, but unconsciously we're... And that's one of the reasons that the more seductive we go in absorption, like the jhana states, the more those raptured states are, are, are companions within that. And so people say, should... Should I do the jhanas? And I say, how am I supposed to know? You, you do them, but you, here's, the, here's the pitfall. You'll feel unbelievable bliss, calm, uh, a number of factors that are extraordinarily seductive. I used to run this course, Labor Day course, right after uh, Lee... I think I still do, Lee Brasington. And he does two weeks of jhana practice. And some of those people, I don't know if there's anyone here that did his two weeks before they came here. But oftentimes there are some of those people that come into this course just as a continuation. I can't get them out of jhanas. I mean, I find them absolutely hopeless. And they'll, they'll give me the rap. You know, they'll tell you, well, suit to X and Y, and, uh, you know, I'm spending 10 minutes out of the jhanas and looking around, and then I go back in for 30, and I, there's not a thing I can do. Nothing. And I 
have come up again and again and again and again with people, often immature in their practice, not mature people, not people who really understand. And I just, I, I would never send somebody there because it's too seductive of a trap. Well, the breath in its most refined state can be very nice. But being very nice is different than going towards the difficult, which is the practice is about going towards the difficult, not being seduced by what's pleasant. And one of the ways that, the, one of the difficulties is with the pleasant. But we're not willing to look at the difficulty we're having in getting away and being independent of this breath. We just want to go back and be more dependent upon it. But the difficulty is right there with the breath because we're attached to it. But we're not willing to look at the attachment. You see? So we're not really willing to look at the difficulty in many states. Well, that's not what the Buddha meant by Anapanasanti at all. So, um, my suggestion is, uh, you know, spend some time to stabilize the mind. Now, stabilizing the mind is itself a seductive. They're all seductive. (laughs) And... What we like to do is, it's, the more we do that, the more we have personal meditation power. The more concentrated we become. It's like we're in the gym, right? And we've lifted weights and we stand in front of the mirror. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that is what we do spiritually with ourselves, with this enormous power of concentration that we have developed. It is so seductive in terms of its power. And instead of that, all you need is the, you need the strength to lift a piece of paper, not a barbell. You just need to steady the attention. And once you take your attention off the breath and place it on whatever it is that you're sustaining your attention on, concentration is also being built upon that other object that now you're sustaining your attention on to get to know, you see? It doesn't just happen through the breath. It happens wherever you place your attention. So it's not as if we have to stay with the breath to reach the stability we need in order to go off and look. Wherever we go off and look, part of what is being cultivated in that moment is stability. See? So let's just look at the pain in my knee. Let's look at whatever is calling the mind out, where we're being called out, where we're being called out onto the carpet is often the most difficult area for us. Oh, the, you know, the, tr- the, the plane that goes roaring by or the train that goes roaring by. And you go, ah, oh, that irritation. Okay, what's going on there? What's going on there? Until we find the genetic code of our suffering, we will continue to suffer in more refined ways. And there's only one reason we suffer. And a a myriad of different applications to this central rule. Simply, we want life, we imagine life, a secondary reality to life. We say, this should not be happening. As soon as we say this should not be happening, we have an alternative, imaginary reality, which is what we want to be happening. The plane should not be going overhead. And we put our energetic connection to the imaginative rather than to the real. And the distance between that is called suffering. We invest 
and what the mind says could be happening, not in the reality that is happening. And so from that point of view, then it's just thought, really. We've invested in thought and emotion. And so really all we're doing then is, is releasing the alternative reality, the virtual reality. Because the virtual reality doesn't hold reality. I mean, it makes so much sense. So I wish my pain wasn't happening. Okay. What does that do? I know I really don't want it. I know, but what? Here it is, you know. And so until and unless we're willing just, okay, that's it. It's not, surrender often requires going through the stages of grief. Right? Anger. Damn, I really wanted this need. Of, you know, I wanted my body. I didn't want to grow old. I didn't want to die. I didn't want, I didn't. This shouldn't be happening. And sometimes we can do one of two things. We can either release it immediately because we see the untruth of any thought. Just don't pick it up. Or once the thought latches on, now we have to go through the grief of releasing the ideal that is not happening. I wanted the person to continue to live. That's the same thing. That's what we call grief. But grief is happening all the time whenever we don't get what we want. We get angry, we get irritated, we get annoyed. In fact, I, it's hard for me to think of a single incident of anger that isn't associated with grief. Yes. Yes. Yes, impermanence. And I said in the first talk, the difference between being in time and time being in me. Right? That's the difference between the conditioned and the unconditioned. The uncondition the conditioned reality is that we are in time. Right? that it's happening to us. Things are moving, changing, right? We're, it's happening all around us. Right? That's how we weigh in. And we think that's the nature of reality. We even call it one of the characteristics of reality. It's a characteristic of a mind-formed reality. It's not the characteristic of the truth. We think... We, I mean, it's just... It's what the mind has made of the truth. Suffering is what the mind has made from the truth. That's why we suffer. It isn't the truth of life. It's the truth of life when looked through the mind. So, what is happening that allows us to stand outside of change and notice that change is occurring is that we think about it. God, I'm getting old. You know, or my birthday's coming up. Or it's three o'clock. We don't realize that three o'clock happens to be what we do at three o'clock. Three o'clock and what, we, what is happening to us at three o'clock are not different. We arise at three o'clock. But we think of it as something 
that we have to get to or be somewhere by three. <laughs> it's so crazy when you begin to see it. So, we think of time as something happening to me, don't we? As something outside. Time, and we even think about it. We think time is happening, time, you know. We're creating time. You and I are creating time. Time is something we're doing to, we're thinking into creation. Where is, where is any other time but now? If it were true, show it to me. It should be provable. But you can't, because everywhere you point is now. And we've created the whole world from that. Distance. See, as we stop here, I'll show you how bizarre it gets. Just to take you out there a little bit. You think the whole world is working, you know, it's like, got it all mapped out, right? Republican convention is, you know, all, you know, right, everything. It's all been, it's all here in the head. Nothing is happening. simpler than that for me. That's okay. I just took them out. You stay here. <laughs> You're okay. You're fine where you are. Just have fun with this. Yeah, don't kill. Oh, oh, oh God, I've got to call my wife. <laughs> She's not really. Do you really exist, dear? <laughs> <laughs> There's only one of us. It's all happening at the same time. All expressions of life. Every incident is arising together. If they were rising at different times, there'd be more than one of us. So we've created time to have playmates. Really. Now I have a whole bunch of people. But unfortunately, I'm angry at all of them. <laughs> Which is the nature of splitting things out. for one more if anyone has a final question. Yes. Susan. Question is how to deal with your fear of death. Uh, it's a 
very complex question, Susan. It's not, there's no simple answer to that. But one of the things, one of the ways that is very useful is beginning to notice what you're afraid of is happening all around us continuously. That it isn't one thing that's going to happen at some future date called me dying. The death is, the transitions of life are continuous all the time. Leaves are dropping, winds are blowing, night is falling, days are rising, right? Begin to notice the beginning and endings of all things. And that takes us beyond what I call the first stage of that awareness is the sense of being uh, self-protective. Kind of, We kind of get very frightened by the thought of us dying. But what loosens the hold of that is that you see it's organic. It's not personal. That you, in fact, in ways are dying all the time. Your thoughts, your what? So what? So, so strange. Okay. So I, that's why I'm thinking that I am being concerned with death. It was like because I actually experienced something that I could not stay with. And so I think that's what I'm asking you then. What you experienced was what? What did you experience? You thought you were dying? No, I don't think I was dying. It was more that I was aware in terms of what I was... Because what I did is I actually ended up collapsing in so that I did not experience it. And I was very clear what I was feeling. So it's not necessarily death, but fear, right? Pardon? Your question really has to do more with fear than death, doesn't it? Okay. Okay, so... How do we work with fear? Is that a better question for you? I'm not trying to convince you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, wherever I go on this thing, you're going to have to follow me. You can't roadblock me. I mean, I'm, I'm trying. You know, I can go anywhere you want to go, but I don't know. You know, you you keep putting a. You, I, I keep feeling you digging in your heels. So. We've got to either go together or I can't say much. Okay, what is fear? You see? What is it? I want to know what it is. If I'm afraid of it, that means I don't know what it is. Now there's not just fear, but fear of fear. At least let me have the thing itself without the background reaction to it. To do that, I have to know what it is. Let me look at it. What's, it, what's fear saying? What is the mind doing in fear? That's what, see, okay, the mind is saying something in fear. It has a pattern that then activates the limbic system, adrenaline rush, and I am in hyperarousal called fear. What, 
it's helpful for me to go back biologically and see, you know, that I needed to get myself moving quickly when I saw the lion come charging. So fear did that. It put me in, you know, it gave me hyperspeed. All right, so that primitive system is still in its, is still activated. But what does it do? What is it? Okay, so that's biological. But what's it doing in the mind? We should know what desire is doing in the mind. We should know what fear, what loneliness, what anything, everything. We should know its its map. What does it do? What is it for? Not only what it feels like, but what is happening. And what you will see if you look is that it's the expectation. It's the worst case scenario. It's the a future expectation of something happening that is not happening now, but if I continue the course, it's the worst case scenario of what will happen if this continues. It's always the worst case scenario. It doesn't consider any other possibilities but the tragic one. First of all, there are many possibilities. That being one of 10,000, 100,000, a million, I don't know, infinite number. Secondly, it's not happening now. And if we stay now, fear has no access to now. Now that is how you handle fear. You don't move from now. I was... This is last winter. I was up in the Hermitage planning a month long. I caught the flu while I was up there and I got bronchitis and I couldn't breathe and I started being afraid of going to sleep because I seemed like I had to force air into my lungs just to be able to breathe. So I was afraid to go to sleep because then I wouldn't have the will to continue to force air and then my fear was that I would die if I went to sleep. So I had a few sleepless nights. So I called my wife and said, come and get me, this isn't working. So she did. We went home, lying in bed, same fear arose. I said to her, I'm in terror. She says, practice meta. I said, <laughs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> practice meta. Okay, so I'm not a big practicer of metta as some kind of external thing. That's not my style. So I'm going to enter metta. And I said, may I be safe and free of danger. Now, I don't make that as a something, a wish. I make that as a statement of the now. The now is free, safe and free of danger. And I entered that statement of now. It is free of danger and fear could not enter because I was willing to see, have the faith that now held safety and freedom of danger regardless of what it did. You see? That was the end of fear. In that moment, I'm not saying it doesn't come back, if I, but it showed me a tremendous possibility and potential.
Now you put whatever fear you want, fear of closed spaces, death, anything, people, it's exactly the same. Look at fear, not what we're afraid of. If you deal, you can deal effectively, decondition yourself to what you're afraid of, but a fear will pop up somewhere else. It's like a bulge in a tire. Fear, unless we know fear, fear will continue. Yes, I can decondition myself from enclosed places so I can get on elevators. That makes my life more functional, but it does nothing to fear. I want to know what fear is. Hmm? And believe me, it always has to do with something about time. Desire has something to do with time. Fear has something to do with time. Aversion. Everything that the mind can... Con because it only has one tool, and that's time. And if it can convince you of time, then you're no longer here and now. And once you're convinced, once we have agreed to that scenario of time, we are outside of safety and freedom of danger. We have cast ourselves outside of the safety of now. And wherever we are, wherever we are attached, Mara will track us down, said the Buddha. Wherever we are limited by time, Mara is there waiting for us. Because this is about now. And until we understand that that is the only reference anything can have, That there is, that, that's why thought goes. It's, not, it's because it has no meaning. It's because it always projects some other, some situation, place, time, outside of now. Any thought does. And so it's as if you're seeing, when you see the truth of now and a thought comes, you don't invest in it because it has no truth. Not because you want to be quiet. I want to be still. I'm not going to have thought. No, it's because it, it's not true. And so when it's seen in that way, it stops being infused with any power whatsoever. It simply has no power. And then it becomes unemployed. And so the mind becomes quiet, not through coercion, but from, by seeing the truth. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.